Welcome to Giving Forward, a podcast from the Community Foundation for Northeast Florida. I'm your host, Nina Waters. I'm also the foundation's president. In each episode, we're taking you behind the scenes, sharing the real stories of philanthropists and nonprofits that have shaped our community here in Northeast Florida. Today, I'm welcoming Bill Shy. Bill is an amazing leader and a friend. He's a shareholder at Rogers Towers, an expert mediator, and he has led us through all sorts of thorny issues, pension reform, election integrity, and a whole lot more. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thanks so much for coming to Jacksonville and for being part of this. Thank you, Nina. It's great. It's great to be with you anytime. I feel the same. So So we're going to have a great conversation today about our shared journey with the Community Foundation, which was a wonderful experience, I think, for both of us. And I want to kind of start with a little bit about you. Um, and I know that this is hard for you, the <laughs> humble man that you are. Um, but I was reading an article about you that um, that termed you the civic Superman. Uh, and yeah. um, I think that was so appropriate. <laughs> and so, you know, you um, were the a past chairman of our board. You were the uh, recipient of the Prize for Civic Engagement, only one of two recipients of that yeah. award that we give. Um You've mediated some really difficult conversations, including some things that you've done for us, shareholder at Rogers Towers for years, um, and a really faithful member of Riverside Presbyterian Church, among some things. And so I want to take you back to an early civic engagement with you and the work you did around Blodgett Homes. The chamber and the city council wanted to move Blodgett Homes, which was a 565-unit public housing project off of State and Union Street um, down near the expressway. 565 homes. And so they made this plan. They really didn't talk to anybody about it. And they presented it to city council. In the meantime, the the Blodgett residents showed up before any of this at the city council and just raised all sorts of fury about this because this this was their neighborhood. Yep. And this the, here were the, the white people telling the black people that not only did they not have a say, but they were going to be farmed out somewhere that they didn't even know where. And they were really, they were both sad and they were angry. And they had gotten with legal aid. And it was a boisterous city council meeting, as you can imagine. And after that, the mayor, who I think was Hazuri at that time, asked me to put together a group to mediate it. I had just come off a, a, a term as president of legal aid. So we put together a Blodgett task force, a majority of the members of which were residents of Blodgett. There was a city council person and chamber person and some other people from the community. Well, I'll never forget. I mean, you can imagine people didn't know each other, didn't trust each right. other. And you can imagine how that was. But we all came together and started trusting each other when we took a vote on whether there would be scattered site housing where they would have individual homes or they would be staying in their own neighborhood together. And the the African-Americans won the vote like 13 to 11. And what was their choice? Their choice was to do the scattered sites. 
Well, instead of arguing about, you know how sometimes happens in in these committees, is the losing side tries to undercut what happens and they'll work against it. So at the end of the day, it's first. Well, I give credit to the people on that committee because they didn't do that. So there began to be great trust. And after about two months, we presented a unanimous plan to the city council for what to do in scattered site housing with 100 units that would remain at the Blodgett area. It was just a great experience. And um, that really sort of was the beginning of a lot of black-white things in the community. For listeners, I want to add a note here. There were actually two important votes about the future of Blodgett homes, and both votes went down racial lines. African-American residents wanted the new homes to have air conditioning, and they also were in favor of scattered site housing as opposed to one large complex, with a few of the homes located near the original site of Blodgett. In both votes, the committee upheld the choice of the residents. The committee really came together as one by the end of the discussion, and that's what made it such a moment of trust. So the work you just described in the community really led to you being a trusted bridge builder around racial issues in Jacksonville. And one of the um, largest or most famous moments, I think, was when you were appointed interim supervisor of elections after the hanging chad incident in the state of florida can you talk a little bit about (laughs) that experience that was quite an experience well you remember in 2000 was the the presidential election with all the hanging chads and jacksonville really didn't have a lot of hanging well they had them but they decided to bury it well 2004 came around and so they wanted uh, they wanted to avoid that Mm-hmm. And so they wanted somebody to come in. John Stafford, who was very capable as a supervisor for elections, but he was sick. I mean, real sick. So he he later died, maybe six months later. But he couldn't do it. So um, Mayor Payton actually asked me if I would do it, and I was shocked. But I said, well, we just think and pray about it. And so um, we ended up deciding to do it. And the press conference to announce it was the following Tuesday, two days later, Tuesday morning. And it was just two weeks before the presidential the election. election. That's a big deal. So at the press conference is uh, Congresswoman Corinne Brown, and with her she brings Jesse Jackson. So we're at the press conference, and he said, y'all stole the election in 2000, and you're going to steal the election now. I said, "Miss Dr. Jackson, I knew he wasn't a doctor. We're going to have a good election. I'll see you later. And I turned around and walked off. He never came back. And we ended up having a great election primarily because the two parties, well, we had a meeting every day at 4.30 in the office of the supervisor. And the Republicans showed up, Democrats, the Kerry campaign, the Bush campaign, no press. That was the rule. And since I was the only representative of the public, they didn't have to be pressed. There weren't right. two people. It wasn't sunshine. That's right. And there was always a problem to start with. But by the end of each meeting, which was usually an hour, an hour and a half, we'd worked out the problem for the day. And the next day, there was going to be another problem. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way it was. But it worked out real well. My Rotary Club, which is what was West Jacks, 50 of them volunteered to go around the precincts and make sure everything was working right. Um, they came to that press conference. It was 
It was a they they did a great volunteer job, and the workers were just fantastic. It was and, a great experience. And through all this, your law firm never wondered or worried about you. They always <laughs> they probably let, worried. They put, they put you on loan, you know, and they did that they did. over and over again. They did. Which is an amazing thing about they that did. firm and and how they give back yeah. to the community. Well, tell me about you and how I remember some of your coming here. What brought you to the Community Foundation? Good question. So I was the executive director of the Pace Center for Girls Jacksonville. We built a building on University Boulevard in 2000 and moved into that building. And we were able to pay it off in seven months because it was a, a really good time economically. And uh -huh. so I really was thinking about what do I need to do next? And so I made the leap to the Community right. Foundation, and um, it was an interesting experience. I'm not a risk taker, and um, I, don't I think believe that for I'm not at all. I'm so, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm yeah. so predictable, um, but I've, I've taken two risks in my life. The first risk was I'm, I married my husband after one month of knowing him. Oh my I, I, we got engaged a month <laughs> after we met, and my father um, thought it was my college sweetheart that he had just met, <laughs> and, and it wasn't. <laughs> and, um, and that was a really good risk yeah. 43 years ago. And then the second one was taking this job. Uh -huh. um, I didn't know anything about philanthropy, and I had a lot to learn. And um, there were days that I felt like I made a really yeah. great landing in the wrong airport. And it was people <laughs> like you and others who yeah. really helped me to and had patience with yeah. me you know, as I yeah. learned um, the craft of philanthropy yeah. and stepped into the role. We were a pretty good team. We were a great team. I learned a lot from you. But what we were trying to do, it seems to me, which you're the really expert at, is building trust and building relationships. And with your agency background, you had a lot of relationships that nobody really had had before at the Community Foundation. And with your civic leadership background, which was, which was also very helpful, mm -hmm. so you came from that same... How, how do we lead in the community? And so you felt the same way that I did about that. And yep. I think that really helped us to kind of swing the pendulum from a really donor-focused community foundation, mm -hmm. which is still important, to a civic leadership community foundation. And what does that look like? And so if you remember in 2005 when you chaired is when we moved into the education arena. Mm -hmm. And um, that was a really big moment for the community foundation to say, how yep. do we step out on an issue? And we hadn't been known to do that. And indeed, when we stepped out, there were some people shooting arrows at us. No, oh, they were. You know, saying yeah. uh, that this isn't your place. Who do you think you are? I remember I'd, I'd a conversation that, yeah. with a city leader that stopped me and said, who do you think you are stepping out on education? And, <laughs> um, and so it was an interesting time for us as yeah. we were making that shift, not forgetting the donors, not, you know, but saying, how do we, how do we move from donor focus to more community focused? Mm -hmm. There was concern on the board that if we stepped out on an issue, would we lose some donors? Right. And there was a lot of work in the community foundation field at that time about yeah. that very subject. Mm -hmm. And I remember an article that we all read, you know, called The Cost of Sticking Your Neck Out. It was a great uh, article. Uh, and um, and uh, so it really told us, you know, it's actually, you'll grow as a result of it. And we certainly did. We, we went, we sure did. you know, from 51 yeah. million quickly to, 630 yeah. million, uh, I know, over 20 and that's years. That's unbelievable. That's and it's just, the leadership work because yeah. people understood what a community foundation does. Right. And they said, oh, I get it. I understand. I want to be part yeah. of that. Well, you and I had gone to that community foundation 
conference somewhere in South Florida. Yes. And we came back and Aspen Institute. It was the Aspen Roundtable for Community yeah. Change. And that, that was in 2005, yeah. my first year, your first year as yeah. chair. And, and Henry Thomas went, an African-American. Henry yeah. Thomas went with us, and he was chair of the Jacksonville Human Rights Commission Board. Mm -hmm. And so the three of us went. The Aspen Roundtable, which is part of Aspen Institute, was doing seminars for community foundations. And we were in the second cohort. The first cohort actually got to go to Aspen. We got to go yeah. to West Palm Beach, <laughs> which maybe was good since it was in January. Um, and we spent three or four days with 12 other community yeah. foundations learning about structural racism. The name of the, of the session was Structural Racism in Society. Yeah. And we learned about structural racism and the history of race in our country. And we did it together. Yeah. Um, and the cool thing was we said, wouldn't it be great if we could actually bring this seminar to our community? Because we, we learned about it as the United States as a country, but yeah. in the South, where we are, there are, there are other narratives about race as well, yeah. or richer narratives in some cases. And so we were able to bring the Aspen Institute, the Aspen Roundtable here with the lead facilitator, Kimberly Crenshaw, That's who's right. nationally known. And, and, and really political chamber leaders. Yes. Civic leaders and just ordinary folks, too. Yeah, we had the yeah. mayor, the head of the school board, school board chair, yeah. the sheriff. Um, uh, 28 people came together for a weekend, yeah. head of all the universities, to really talk about structural racism and, it, and addressed education and the criminal justice system, employment, yeah. the media, <coughs> racism yeah. in the media. And, and we were able to put a Jacksonville focus on that and talk about our history as a community. And then what do we want to do as a result of that? Yeah. It was a really great experience. It really was. And it's led to some lasting work that continues to happen. It was called Project Breakthrough, Changing mm -hmm. the Story of Race in Jacksonville. And it was a collaborative with us. The Community Foundation was the only mm -hmm. funder, the Aspen Institute, the Jacksonville Human Rights Commission, and One Jacks. And now it's still going on at UNF in their College of Education. That's great. So we're having a lot of those conversations today mm -hmm. um, in our community, and sometimes people don't realize that there have been conversations before today, yeah. and this is an issue that we've talked about for a long time. And when we did Project Breakthrough, one of the things that came out of it was um, we went back and looked at, I think it was 14 studies that have been done since the 1940s until now, including the Young Black Male study mm -hmm. that you did, around race, and we cataloged those. And then a new organization that's come in place since you moved is called 90 Forward. And so we gave that catalog to 90 Forward. And 90 Forward is doing a whole race and retrospect um, mm. piece of seven different areas of racism and structural racism in our community. Mm. And where are we? So it really lives on in so many ways. It does. And most of it is about forming relationships and building trust. And it used to be there really were not any relationships of substance between African Americans and whites. And over the years, those gradually built up for a lot of reasons. Um, mayor Brown was the first African American mayor. Mm -hmm. He was only a one-term mayor, but he, uh, he did bring some of that too. And Mayor Payton with study circles. Well, Mayor Payton had a lot of courage in undertaking some of that. He did. He really did because it, it was important. And it was kind of scary because you really didn't know, you really didn't know people and how to 
how to articulate much of anything because you didn't want to set things afire either. You, you wanted to be able to do, do things in a positive way. Right. So. I think that's a challenge for us still as a community um, yeah. and especially as a country is how do you have Boy. civil discourse? You yeah. know, how do you have honest conversations? How do you agree to disagree civilly? Look at Congress right now. Yeah. And just the Democrats are on one side and the Republicans right. on the other side. And it's almost like their bases are insisting that they don't talk to the other side. You don't it's see people sad. reaching across the aisle. Yeah. So that's a challenge we're faced with, and I think it's it's an ongoing challenge. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, it's the truth. <laughs> it In preparing for this time with you today, I was looking back at the work we did with Feeding America and if you can believe that was almost 10 years ago. It's hard to believe. 2014, yeah. um, we as a community almost lost being a, a Feeding America city, the designation yeah. with Feeding America when Second Harvest Food Bank, which was then under Lutheran Social Services, um, lost the connection to Feeding America nationally. Yeah. Um, because oh, we're about to. We're about to right. because of right. years of, unfortunately, not um, responding to, to concerns um, that Feeding America yeah. had about the safe handling of food. Safe handling of food and also where some of the money was going. Right. And so Feeding America, which was a national and still is a national organization, uh, came in and I think they were going to go in central Florida. They had a chapter in Orlando. So Feeding America, yeah. mostly what happens is they're in all over the United States, but they're independent. They're not really affiliated with and or under an organization. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to form an independent food bank here. Um, and um, Second Harvest wasn't willing to negotiate with mm -hmm. them. And the challenge for me was that if we lost Feeding America, we would lose the indemnification for grocery stores. For grocery stores. stores. That's, that means that if something goes wrong with some food, that um, the an indemnity is where the provider of the food agrees to make the, the person whole that yeah. suffered a loss or an injury because of the food. Exactly. That's important. And so the grocery stores would then no longer donate food right. to our food bank. And a food bank is like a logistics organization. And all of the food pantries in the entire region are fed by the food bank. So if we didn't have yeah. grocery stores putting food into <clears throat> the food bank, and then we didn't have the food bank having any food to get out to grocery stores, we would lose the entire chain. And so Feeding America contacted us as a community foundation, working with community foundations all over the country and said, can you mediate some type mm -hmm. of a, a compromise? Yeah. And so we brought in the mediator extraordinaire, right. Bill Shy, to try to help <laughs> us um, bridge that because we, we were in, in a huge amount of danger at the time. Yep. And yep. so we had Feeding America came from yep. Chicago, mm -hmm. I think it was, and then um, Lutheran Social Services, you and the Community Foundation meeting in that room. It was a really great meeting yep. um, to get, mm -hmm. I think, everyone's beliefs and, and narrative about why we were where we were on the table. Yep. And at the end of the day, there wasn't the ability for Second Harvest Food Bank to relinquish assets. And so we had the job of standing up a new food bank um, that was going to run in parallel. And mm -hmm. then eventually what happened was Second Harvest couldn't exist without the Feeding America designation. Mm -hmm. 
obviously. And so they, they became more of a food pantry than a food bank. Okay. And then feeding Northeast Florida was birth at that time. Yep. Weren't you involved in the, your family in the food business in some way? Yeah, so um, I grew up in a little town outside of Pittsburgh called Aspenwall. And my grandparents came over from Sicily in the early 1900s. And my grandfather started to be as a huckster. So he carried bananas on his back. And then he got a cart. And then he got a truck. And then he built a store. And so it was wow. one of the oldest grocery stores in Pittsburgh. And then my father and my uncles came into the store as well. And uh-huh. so I started working there when I was eight. Um, I got my social security statement recently, and I, I saw that my dad started paying into social security wow. for me at the age of eight. So what does an eight-year-old do um, working in a grocery store? I stocked and dusted shelves. And so that was my entire, you know, we had this little machine that you would stamp the price yep. on everything, and then yep. I would stock all the shelves. And oh, that's great. And I did that. You know, I don't know that you knew this about me, but when we were little boys, we grew up. I grew up in Ortega. And we shopped, my parents shopped for groceries at Allen's in Avondale. It was oh. a great supermarket. But we were little boys, my brother Frank and I. And Philip, I'll never forget his name. Philip was the guy that did, he did the stamping and the packing. Well, we'd go there and he took a shine to us and he'd let us do the stamping, which for little little kids was just a lot of fun. It is so a I can lot of identify fun. with you oh, as an eight so year old funny. doing that. So. Yeah, I loved it. And I grew up. <laughs> You know, we, my dad's store, my grandfather's and then my dad's catered to the, one of the wealthiest suburbs of mm. Pittsburgh called Fox Chapel and the Heinzes and the wow. U.S. Steel people and all kinds of those folks live yeah. there. And it, I think it really prepared me for the job I have today mm. um, because I've, I grew up in the service business. Yep. We've grown up always serving others. And yep. I think that's, yep. and so this interested me tremendously Um, the work with Feeding Northeast Florida. And we did it all in the background. Like we do a lot of our work. A lot of people don't know. Nobody knows. We were involved. We were involved in raising the majority of the money Uh to get them on their feet um, and and turning, of course, over to them. But, uh, you know, again, it's it's the role of a community foundation. We don't need the credit because we are funded by our fees um, and other ways, but we need those organizations to get sure. the credit and the light needed to shine on them as a new organization. Sure. What you were saying reminded me of really the guiding things for me, scripture-wise. First uh, Corinthians 12 talks about some of us being ears and some noses and some feet, and we can't all be a ear. And an ear can't do what a foot does, and a foot can't do what an ear does. But mm-hmm. if people can bring their different gifts and be appreciated um, and work uh, together to, for a common goal, and, and the other scripture which describes what that common goal is, is Micah 6, to do justice, love mercy, and walk, most importantly, walk humbly and not seek the credit. And that's a good example and of the Community my Foundation. Favorite, yeah. my favorite scripture, too. I know your faith has been extremely yeah. important to you and guided your work. Well, that's been important. And uh, that it led to really building relationships. Um, it's important that you really don't necessarily get the credit for things. It's, it's just helping, helping people to use their gifts to do what they can do best. When I look back, um, we'll be celebrating our 60th anniversary at the Community Foundation next year. Um, And when I look back, I look at all of the capital that we as a community foundation deploy and the capital that 
that we as individuals deploy. And so financial capital is really the way that people think about foundations, the Mm -hmm. money that you give, the grants that you give. But the other capital, which you're talking about, really the relational capital, the social capital, um, the intellectual capital, which you have Mm -hmm. an abundance of and you do a lot, especially Mm -hmm. with your mediations. But I think the thing that stands out for me the most about you is that you aren't afraid to exercise moral capital. You know, where do you put the stake in the ground? What do you stand for? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's important. And I think in the early years of the Community Foundation, it was hard to do because we didn't have the assets. We didn't have the reputational capital to to, to then stand to for To be something. a respected stake. Exactly. Or, right, sure. And so as the Community Foundation grew, we had the ability to exercise that moral capital. And one thing yeah. I remember you telling me was be careful how often you do that because you can't stand for everything. Mm, you know, if you yeah. stand for everything, you stand for nothing. But you helped That's us true. to find our courage and our voice. Well, I, I wouldn't that say that important. was me. I think that was you. I think you well, brought a lot of courage and and uh, innocence, if you will, to it, but that gave you the ability to explore and to experiment and to not be afraid to stake, to put a stake in the ground, really. And for the board allowing me to do it. Well, thank you, and it's been a blessing and an honor to be on this journey with you. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Giving Forward podcast from the Community Foundation for Northeast Florida. Special thanks to Nina Waters and all our guests for joining us, and to Mark Walker for the studio space at the Jesse Ball DuPont Center. Be sure to visit our all-new website, jackscf.org, and sign up for email updates to find out how you can be part of building a better community.